This is episode 14 of The Investor's Podcast, and I just want to say that this was our interview with Guy Spear, and he was very generous with his time. Uh, He afforded us about an hour and 50 minutes of his time during this interview, and so what we did is we split this interview into two parts. So this episode is going to be about 45 minutes long, and then uh, next week we'll release the uh, second part, which will be about another 45, 50 minutes. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, hey, hey. How's everybody doing today? This is Preston Pish. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And today we've got two guests for you. Uh, Hari Ramachandra from Bits Business is with us. And he's helping us interview our guest who we are just thrilled to have on the show today. And that is Guy Spear. So uh, I know I sent out a couple emails to some of the people in the audience, giving people an idea of who Guy is and that he was going to be coming on our show. So uh, let me just open up by saying that Guy is the best-selling author of the book, The Education of a Value Investor. And I can say unequivocally that this book was Stig and I's favorite read for 2014. Uh, in fact, I was talking to one of my close friends, Colin Yablonski, on the phone the other night, and he told me that uh, he was recently reading Guy's book, and he said that he finished two-thirds of this book in a single day. Um, and he quoted something like, you know, Preston, whenever you're receiving that much value, it's really hard to put something down and walk away from it. So I know it might sound like we're uh, really promoting uh, Guy's book pretty hard here because uh, we're literally looking at him and uh, have him on the show. But if that's how you feel and you don't want to put up with our uh, perceived bias on how good Guy's book is, uh, I encourage you, go to Amazon, pull up the uh, general public's uh, comments and reviews of his book, and you will see how many five-star reviews there are for this book. So in one phrase to the audience, this is a must-read book, and we highly recommend that you go out and get it. And if you forget the name or you want to be able to pull it up later on, we'll have that in our show notes, and uh, you can link to that and uh, check it out. So here's a little background on Guy. So Guy graduated the top of his class from Oxford University with a degree in economics. Uh, After graduation, he was awarded the George Webb Medley Prize for Best Performance in Economics that year. In fact, his performance was so stellar that during that time, he became a contemporary of David Cameron, who was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. After he attended uh, economic tutorials with the man in charge of the entire UK, uh, Guy decided to take some time off, so he went to Harvard uh, Business School. Like Stig, everyone's got to slack off from time to time, so... uh, And that was obviously a really bad joke on my part. But hey, we'll keep moving here. So uh, then in 1997, Guy started his own fund. It was the Aqua Marine Fund, and he styled it after uh, Warren Buffett's 1950 partnership. Uh, Guy is well known for bidding 650K with Monish Pabri for a charity lunch back in 2007. And for all of our dedicated listeners, yes, that's Monish Pabri, the gentleman we discussed in episode four with Hari. So if you're wondering, Guy and Monish are close friends, and we are of the opinion that both of these gentlemen are the up and rising stars within value investing community. So without further delay, I extend my warm welcome to Guy Spear. So Guy, what did I miss? Oh, first of all, Preston, Stig, and Harry, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And thank you so much for having me. 
And I just want to know, with all those kind words for the book, my publisher definitely thanks you very, very much. <laughs> and, and who knows, maybe if I get some residuals at the end of the year, even I will thank you, but that's extremely <laughs> kind. Um, no, I think you've done, you've done quite a bit of work on me. So uh, you've done quite a bit of research and you seem to have uh, gotten, gotten the bio part pretty correct. So uh, thank you for doing that. I think it's probably what I ought to expect from a graduate of West Point, you know, totally <laughs> thorough and um, not going to miss anything. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you, sir. We are just so thrilled that you came on the show and that you're sharing your time with us and more importantly, our audience, because I know that they're really going to greatly benefit from your comments. So uh, without further delay, uh, Stig's got the first question. So uh, Stig, just fire away. Okay. Thank you, Preston. And Guy, we are so thrilled to have you, but I think that Preston probably presented you a lot better than I can. So <laughs> I think I'll just get to the first question. Uh, you know, one thing that was really, you know, amazing about this book, and I discussed this with Preston before the interview, was there were so many parallels between our own path to, uh, to value investing and the path that you're describing. So like you, uh, you had an MBA in economics, studied at Harvard. Um, and, you know, and, and while starting, uh, as, as the way I understood it, you had this idea that you needed to have a career in finance. And that was like the one goal with, if not with your life, then was, it was really one thing that you were aiming for. Uh, I had the same feeling and I spent, hold your horses, exactly 18 months in this, these, uh, this high powered, you know, financial sector job. And then I slowly figured out that, uh, this company, um, I wouldn't say it was compromising my value, but it was definitely not something that I feel authentic about working for. Um, and without speaking too much about myself, sorry for that. You know, a question that I've been asking myself over and over again is, where would I have been today? Not so much financially, but more, more importantly, personally, if I had stayed in a job like that. And I think that was really, you know, in parallel to what you experienced at DH Blair. So I'm very curious about, like, you have a few years on me. Um, <laughs> Where do you think you had been if you had stayed there at least like five, 10 years? And I just want to throw something out there for the audience that maybe haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet, Guy. And uh, what Stig's question was referencing at D.H. Blair is where Guy originally started out working in Wall Street. And he talks about his experience of working for this company where um, the company would basically dress up a uh, new company that they were trying to sell to different investors. And they would highlight the the few strengths and just neglect to even mention a lot of the uh a lot of the risks associated with the with the investment and then they would have a person like guy who has all these incredible credentials with from oxford and harvard and everywhere else kind of standing there selling the the investment to different people and it put him in this position that was was not him it was not who he really wanted to be as a person and he talks about this experience in the book and it's just extremely profound and so just to Add a little context to it in case you aren't familiar with uh, what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, just before getting into the answer to that, I think that what's interesting is, you know, my editor at the uh, at Palgrave, Laurie Harting, said time and again, "Don't tell your audience, show the audience." And I think that uh, so I, I worked really hard at sharing my experiences, and it's just very rewarding for me to see somebody like you say, "Oh, that I had a similar experience," because I think that. It sort of brings the reader and the writer together. You're like, oh, uh, you know, we're sort of we're in the same boat. And uh, on on another level, I think it's rather sad how many of us 
started off with a financial uh, financial services business with kind of high hopes and sort of moral hopes. And uh, we gradually discovered as we unpeeled the onion what what lay behind all of the smoke and mirrors. And it's it's deeply unpleasant and I think slightly disconcerting to many of us. Um, but then, you know, where would I have been? I mean, you know, obviously it's the counterfactual. We don't know the answer to that. But as I thought about your question, I thought, you know, one thing is that I think I might have become quite depressed. Uh, I just would have been, you know, not, not consciously depressed, but just an unhappy person. Uh, and I think we've all come across people who are, who are so unhappy in a certain way that they don't realize that they're unhappy. Or, or you know, uh, perhaps I would have become twisted. And by what I mean by twisted is that, you know, there was a good person struggling to get out, but he just couldn't get out given the environment that he was in. And I think if we think of, you know, plants, if we take a plant and put it in the wrong environment, it'll be shriveled. You need to really give it the water and the light and the fresh air and the right things to make it blossom. And I think that I would have just in some way been shriveled. Uh, that's the best of it. I'd like to believe that I wouldn't have ended up in prison. But I can't tell you how many times I was at home just sort of in a certain way looking in the mirror saying, what's wrong with you, guy? Uh, why can't you figure it out like some of the more successful people at your firm? Can. And I think that I'm, I'm glad and lucky that I didn't actually act on the kinds of conclusions that I was drawing because I would have acted. That would have been the path to hell, basically. So, Wow, that was really, uh, really an insightful uh, answer. And, and, and something that I really thought about you, you, that you were talking a lot about was uh, authenticity. Uh, that there was something you spoke uh, a lot about. And I think this is the thing about the inner and our scorecard. I don't know if you have like, if you could just elaborate a bit on that. Why is that so important, especially where you used to work at DS Blair? You know, I mean, that was about the most inauthentic environment you could have ever been in. And, you know, people were saying one thing to one person and another thing to another person in that environment. I think the first time I quick, you know, our mothers always tell us to tell the truth. And we just think it's something that our mothers are telling us because that's what mothers do. And I didn't realize that she was imparting this really profound piece of wisdom. And, you know, but, but the message, this message of authenticity has now come at me from various different really important thinkers. I mean, it started with this dinner that I had with Manish Pabrai, and he talked about his book, Power Versus Force, by David Hawkins where he basically a big part of the book is about authenticity. And uh, we were speaking earlier about um, the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi, where, you know, even the subtitle, the story of my experimentations with the truth. And, and he is, uh, Mahatma Gandhi is utterly truthful in that book. But then, uh, you know, when you, when you go to Charlie Munger and, and you hear Charlie Munger say, it's better to tell the truth because you don't know, um, then you don't have to remember what you said to whom. So it's almost like I've been getting this message on being honest with the world and being authentic and having who we are on the inside be reflected by who we are on the outside from so many different places. Interestingly enough, all of those places connected up with the Berkshire Hathaway crowd. You know, but I would tell you that at D.H. Blair, I didn't have any indications that that was the path to follow. In a certain way, this, this idea of seeking to be authentic is almost 
Or maybe you could argue that it's the same as value investing, but it almost goes far beyond because it's not just about finance. And I really do just thank my lucky stars that I came across, well, it was the intelligent investor for me that helped me onto that path. And it comes back to your original question. Once I started on that path, I got more indications uh, that I needed to become a more authentic version of myself. But if I had not started on that path, God knows where I would have been certainly less happy and less healthy. You know, but Preston, what I would say is that I think that all of us, uh, certainly the four of us on this conversation, and probably many of you listeners, have been in situations where, you know, one person in the room is expecting us to be one way and to say one thing, and another person in the room is expecting us to be another way and to say something else. And we've felt that conflict. And I don't think I realized it. I mean, I was extremely conflicted at uh, this investment bank that I worked. And I didn't think, I don't think I realized at the time that when I, when you feel that, that you're conflicted in that way, then there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the environment and you need to start. It's not something that happens in a, in a heartbeat. You need to start figuring it out basically. And so I guess you know, just, a, just an additional gloss on this idea of being authentic. If we're in situations, if your audience or any either of you three are in situations where you don't feel like you can be authentic, then that's, that's a likely indication that there's something wrong with the environment that you, you need to start making changes. So Yeah, and the longer you stay in that kind of environment, the more you become that environment. And yeah, I... And I, I, th- I th- and I really do think, I mean, I, I was very concerned in, in writing the book because we ended up mentioning the, 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 the man who ran the place, who ended up having um, three, I think, or two out of his four uh, sons-in-law in prison uh, as a result of violations by D.H. Blair that were investigated and they were brought to court uh, uh, by the um, NASD. But I don't think he, like... The rest of us, I don't think he will entered Wall Street a bad man. He entered he entered Wall Street with the desire to the same desires that I had. I saw, I saw. I think he saw himself in me. I saw myself in him. And it's just it's just scary because it shows how warping that environment can be. And and I think that something a point that I've tried to make to a number of journalists is that they like to think of these kind of road traders, and every now and then somebody's paraded up in front of the lights as being people who um, are kind of like different to the rest of us. And I think that my point is, no, they're the same. It's the environment that warps. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you because it's not like you're sitting behind your trading desk or whatever you're doing and thinking, I should do something illegal. It's just that crazy thing happens when you're under a lot of pressure and you don't have time to breathe. Uh, and I know it may sound like, well, one month or 18 months or whatever, how long you work there, but you're under so much pressure that you just, you know, can't always separate right from wrong. Yeah. Um, I just think, I mean, that's really just a takeaway uh, I want to give to people because, you know, I've met the same uh, prejudice about, you know, these evil people that just want to hurt us. I don't think people work on Wall Street necessarily evil people, but I think that sometimes they don't know the difference between right or wrong because they're under so much pressure and can't think about anything else than themselves. And I think that just one, one closing thought there is that I, I don't think that where we were, which was like entry-level positions and, and maybe just relatively junior positions in the firm, I do think that the people at the top of these firms need to think and behave differently. And, and they do bear responsibility 
and should well you know I, I think that at the end of the day businesses have to be prepared to be smaller and less profitable in order to have a more moral environment and I'd like to believe that people at the top of these firms can make a difference completely agree yep okay so let's go to uh, Hari with the uh, second question let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors don't just ride the index seek to outperform it with fidelity active ETFs learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs before investing in any exchange traded fund you should consider its investment objectives risks charges and expenses contact fidelity for a prospectus and offering circular or if available a summary prospectus containing this information read it carefully while active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs fidelity brokerage services LLC member NYSE SIPC our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Guy, uh, it's uh, truly a privilege to be talking to you. And thank you so much for taking time and talking to us. One of the uh, contrarian ideas I picked up from your book uh, is the power of giving. In fact, uh, based on your uh, recommendation in the book, I uh, bought the book Give and Take uh, by Adam Grant and read it. And uh, it's very interesting uh, because most of the time when when we used to, at least when I used to think of givers, I used to imagine Mahatma Gandhi or Mother Teresa. And I would never aspire to be a giver because it's it almost sounds impossible to be a Mother Teresa. But your book basically brought out the practical uh, aspect of being a giver uh, and that was uh, that was very enlightening uh, however um, in the book give and take adam grant talks about you know successful givers and unsuccessful givers and uh, one of the things that he uh, says successful givers do is that they surround themselves with other givers and then also they're very good at filtering out takers so my immediate motivation was how can I be with those givers? And, <laughs> and more importantly, I wanted to know, um, am I a matcher or a giver? Because it's easy to identify a taker. And in his book, he does a good job of identifying them. 
but how do you differentiate and i wanted to know from you how do you differentiate um, matchers and givers and how do you bring in more givers into your uh, circle and so how can i be a giver <laughs> so here if a few things on that um uh, so start so first of all i i was not a giver until i read um cialdini's book and even then i wasn't a real giver i was what i think adam grant gives a sort of a fake giver or a guy who seeks to uh dupe into other people into thinking that he's a giver and i was i i was if you would have asked me at the time uh my sort of approach with like i used to go and buy boxes of chocolates small chocolates and hand them out to people as i met them and if you would have given me truth serum i don't think i would have admitted, admitted this in general but i i would have said uh i am i am doing this in, in order to manipulate the world into um helping me out basically but what i what i really didn't expect was that in doing this I and mean, we're talking about probably over a five year period many thousands of times i actually did change on the inside and that that was that was really surprising to me and it didn't happen in one day and it didn't happen consciously but at some point i started realizing i think that there's something about when you talk about the handwritten notes literally writing the note forcing myself to think of the other person I mean I think that part of the power of that is not the impact that the handwritten note has on the recipient it's the power that that writing that note had on me because it forced me to take a moment to think about that person and to think about what made them special or what was this, was what special idea or thought I wanted to convey to them and then suddenly they they become more precious and dear to me so I think that the the question of how how to become a giver I mean I actually think the answer is fake it till you make it. <laughs> you know, and and the act of faking it will eventually I mean there's there's psychological research that shows if you fake a smile there are genuine processes inside your mind that, that believe that you're feeling better. So this is a, a great example of faking it till you make it. Um but then I I think that on on the how to surround yourself with givers is so I think that what happened to me earlier on was I would start giving and then you know the takers would take and that's a horrible feeling when the takers take and then i'd be like you know giving stupid and i'd stop and it was only because of what i'd read about this joe girard guy in the childini book that i said no i'm going to keep doing it and i think that then you go through a dip a very difficult dip because i don't think you know in many circumstances i don't think i would have known if somebody's a giver a match or a taker until i do something for them so the first i would argue that the first sort of gesture on my side is 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 actually an opportunity to learn how they respond and sadly enough uh, the vast majority of people respond in a taking kind of way it's sort of like i do something for them and they're like oh this is good this is i found father christmas what else is this guy going to do for me let's see what let's see if i prod him some more what happens and i think that i what i've learned there is just to manage my emotions not to get angry or upset about that uh but just to just to try and you know and and these are often perfectly decent people who have wives and families and you know pay their taxes and obey the law and so it's not about getting upset at them it's just about becoming a little bit more distant from them 
And and even then, I mean, so so I think that the first thing that happens, this is what makes it so hard, is you become a giver, and you're surrounded by takers, and that's no fun at all. And and you can't change your your the network of your relationships overnight. So it's sort of like a process of hard work to quietly, to slowly, you know, and it comes down to very minor things. I think like just answer the other person's email, you know, the take somebody's clearly a taker, just. Just don't flame them or anything, but just take a little bit more time before you answer them. Uh, maybe, maybe drop them from the Christmas card list. Just, just let them be a little bit more distant, a little bit further away. And then, you know, so then over time, now it's just between the matches and the givers. And I think actually the givers are extraordinarily rare. Uh, it's not that hard to identify them because when you do an unexpected act of kindness to them, they immediately respond with something generous back, or their first thing is to be generous to you without any request from you. So that that's often a, a very very good sign that they're givers. And um, and then I think just over time, uh, so so surrounding yourself with takers, I don't think is uh, sorry. Surrounding yourself with givers is not something that I think happens in a. You can't force it to happen. What you have to do is slowly and gently remove uh, the takers from your life. And as I removed the takers from my life, there was more space for givers to enter in. And I think that as I distanced myself from some of these takers, I started noticing some of the givers that were around that I just wasn't paying attention to. And that actually were sort of quiet wallflowers in the corner. And I should have just paid attention because they were actually wonderful people who weren't trying to insinuate themselves in any way. So I guess I, I, and I think there's, there's a certain wonderful... Um, uh, sort of beauty in this that it's just not something that you can switch on or off. It's something you have to work at over a long period of time, basically. And I, I would say that I'm still working at it. <laughs> it's not. It's not easy, and it's you know it's really counterintuitive to a lot of people. And I think that that's one of life's biggest lessons is whenever you finally reach the point where you realize if you want to have something or you want to receive something, you've got to give it first. It's as simple as walking in. Ever walk into a building where there's where there's two sets of doors like that control the uh, air conditioning that goes in and out of the building. And whenever you walk up to that first door and you open it for the person who's coming behind you and you let them go through first, what do they do whenever you walk up to the next set of doors that are there? You know, I'd, I'd argue most of the time, 90% of the time, that person opens the second set of doors for you and then you walk in. Yeah. And so in order to receive the, the luxury of having somebody open the door for you, you have to open the door for them first. And I think a lot of people try to do that in reverse where they want the door open for them before they open it for somebody else. And I know that that's a really generic example, but I think in life, it's truly that applies to everything you do in, in different forms. And, and whenever you start figuring that out, and it's taken me a long time to figure it out, but, but I have you know slowly figured that out, that I've got to open the door for the other person before they're going to ever open it for me. And it's just a, it's an amazing piece in, in Guy's book where he's talking about the power of giving and, um, you know, just amazing question, Hari, and a fantastic response, Guy. I think it's really something important to highlight to the audience. But, but I would also say that I think that we, we're um, in, living in a world, I think, where um, before the advent of the Internet, before the advent of radical openness, you could fake being a sort of a, a giver by being a matcher, and, and that would work because people didn't find out about you so fast. I think that in a radically open world, uh, this, this sort of being a giver 
is is just much more powerful and it's in a certain way it's the only way to be because people just find out about you that much faster basically so okay so i'm going to move on to the uh, third question which is mine and uh, we talked about this a little bit in the first question about uh, surrounding yourself with people that you admire. And so it's just incredibly important. I know um, this is like one of my biggest things, and that's probably why it's my first question, is if you could go back to the time when you were 18 years old, Guy, and you could pick only three role models and you could study them and, and, and really kind of understand their essence and the way that they make decisions, who would those three people be? So, uh, you know, I was looking at this before, and obviously, I think that anybody, you know, there's so many people that I would have loved to have picked, but, but would end up discarding for one reason or another, because, you know, they were, you know, Marcus Aurelius was a military leader. He was a hell of a wise guy, but he was a military leader, and I don't much that I want to model myself over him after a Roman military leader. Or I am so deeply impressed with uh, Sionis Shackleton for... Um, the way he handled his mistakes and the way he got his men home. But at the end of the day, I'm not an Arctic explorer. And I think that it's sort of, sort of a too narrow a sort of um, uh, a, uh, a slice of his life that I'm taking. I think there's some aspects of what Sir Shackleton did that were utterly crazy. And if we look at, uh, talk to Hari for a second about Mahatma Gandhi again, there's just no way in hell that I would want to model myself after a guy who almost killed his child. I mean, he describes in the book that so his son was 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 had um, I don't remember what he was ill from, but the doctors came and said that it was really a good idea to give his son some some beef broth, and Mahatma Gandhi just couldn't bring himself to do it, even though that might have. So I, I would not want to model my life after Mahatma Gandhi either. So I think that. What we get to is people who are um, uh, very similar. So the three names I put down very easily were Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Ben Franklin. And I I don't think that that's particularly surprising to the audience. I think that they have lived such full and complete lives as as a rich, each one of them provides a rich scene to mine for ideas and insights about how to live one's own life. So... Those are the three. Sorry, Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> Sorry, Sam <laughs> Shackleton. Sorry, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. A, a guy whose life I just don't know well enough. Uh, but I think, um, it, funnily enough, it, it sort of refers back to the, the previous question is um, um, Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, I think that he, he you were asking um, Hari about how to be a giver in a world of matches and takers. And, and I know that there were a number of times in his career where he did that. He acted as a giver in a world of matches and takers, and he was willing to suffer the consequences and only reap the benefits, you know, many years down the road when these people came back to, to support him. So I think that but I just don't know his life well enough. The next question that is uh, about investors uh, and great investors. So, Kristen and I have studied a variety of investors, and we have surely learned a lot about compounding capital over the years. Then uh, we stumble across you, Guy, and someone like Monish Paprai, and suddenly you started to talk about compounding goodwill, which was a completely new concept uh, for me. So I was just curious, what was the trigger for you 
Was it when you found Dale Carnegie, How to Influence and Influence People, or was it another book, or was it when you met a certain person that you started to to send out these thousands of thousands uh, thank you notes? I think I saw somewhere on YouTube that you sent out, I think you said 20,000 thank you letters. That was impressive. What was the trigger for that? Well, the, the very suddenly, the trigger for sending out uh, those notes was the story of Joe Girard in um, Childine's book. And literally, I mean, I had, I had also had a book of uh, Warren Buffett's letters at the time. Uh, not Warren Buffett, sorry, Ronald Reagan's letters at the time. And I'm like, my God, if this works for him, I put I, I, Joe Girard and even um, Ronald Reagan does it in the White House. And I just have to do it. It was that, that the sort of sending out notes, certainly it just came from that, combined with a slightly unbalanced aspect to me that if anybody's around knows that, um, you know, my wife is just socially much more uh, intelligent than I am. I'm capable of doing some pretty, some things that make me look pretty stupid. And so, uh, you know, I went about this note writing thing in a pretty unhinged way. And then the, the sort of the, this idea of compounding goodwill, I only got to it, and, and I don't know whether, I don't think I read about it anywhere else. I got to it when I was writing the book, and, you know, and I just thought about it, and I thought about the way in which goodwill around me had compounded, and, and I just realized that, you know, the great thing is, is that it doesn't even require capital, so it can be compounded at a very, very high rate. I'll give you... Uh, you know, um, uh, so so I've had the opportunity to observe relatively close hand the work of the Dakshana Foundation, and you know, uh, the every Dakshana scholar, and they number in the hundreds now, are people who, if it was not for the intervention of the Dakshana Foundation, would not have been able to go to the IITs of India, and they get put onto a path where they now have a very very improved lifetimes earnings expectation and the gratitude that those guys have to the Dakshana Foundation and to Monish Pabrai, the, 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 you know, the, the, the acceleration of goodwill that Monish Pabrai is going to experience through that is just mind-boggling because these are the guys who are going to be running, you know, Microsoft, Google, Intel uh, in, in 20, 30 years' time, and they're all going to have this soft spot in their heart for Monish Pabrai and the Dakshana Foundation. So. That is the best example I've seen to date uh, of the compounding of goodwill. But the good news is, is that you can do it in a very, very small way, and it can still lead to extraordinary results. So, um, but, uh, I, I absolutely it, love this part of the book. I mean, this is just this is something that when you talk about real investing, this is real investing, folks. Um, I, I don't even know what to say. I just love this part of the book so much, and. Uh, I, this, I'm excited that the audience could potentially benefit from it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. 
and iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. I, I would tell you that what, what is hard to convey in the book, and uh, you know, so what, what happened to me, part of, part of the desire to write it was that I started seeing these extraordinary results. And you know, one, one of them I describe is that I would never have met Monish Pabrai for dinner had I not been writing in the habit of writing these thank you notes. But um, people would see, see these good things happening in my life. And they, they usually students or younger people, and they say, oh, that's because you got a great education or 
uh, that's because you know Manish Pabrai or and, and and I was like, no, no, you don't get it. it it's because I've been writing these thank you notes, and and they they'd still be like, no, that's 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 also garbage. You just sort of saying that to sort of um, push me away, and so part of the motivation was like, no, I'm going to write it down, and then maybe when I've written a book about it, some of these people will believe me that I, I really feel this way. And I think that here's so that example of meeting Monish Pabrai and. For those who haven't read the book, I talk about, um, you know, I, I, I was determined to write uh, three notes a day or 15 notes a week. And so I was looking for opportunities to write thank you notes. And so if I attended somebody's meeting, that was certainly an opportunity to write a thank you note. And so, and the key is, it's not just that I wrote a thank you note to Manish Pabrai after his meeting, meeting uh, going to his annual meeting. I was writing thank you notes to every single speaker at every single conference that I attended. So I'd sit through some presentation on, you know, uh, God knows what it might be. And I'd write to that speaker and say, thank you so much, uh, and find a reason to thank them. So even if I thought the speech was boring, I'd find a reason why uh, that was a, a good thing to do. So what, what is not conveyed is how uh, you have to do it thousands, well, maybe hundreds of times, if not perhaps thousands of times before you get one hit. And Here's another idea that, that um, is, is uh, you know, so, so you ask the question, um, have you got stories of how thank you notes have, have actually had an impact? And I think in many cases, it's very hard to tell. So imagine, and I think it's happened to me a number of times that somebody has, you know, it's, they've got a dinner party for 12 people and it's them and their wife. So now there's 10 people that they can invite. And they've invited five couples. And then it turns out that uh, one of the couples can't make it or just one person can't make it. And they can invite one person at short notice. And they would have, there's any one of a dozen people that they could invite. What's going to make them pick one person over another one? You know, the, a minor thing like the fact that the guy Spears sent them a note wishing them a happy birthday or wish, sending them a New Year card might make the difference between uh, whether they invite Guy Spear or somebody else. And that dinner party may be the event at which I meet somebody that has a huge impact on me. So I think that you're playing, you're playing with uh, probabilities and you're just improving the probabilities by a very slight amount that people are more likely to ask you. And so what I think I can say is that since I started doing it, the good things happen and the good luck happens just that slight bit more frequently. But that slight bit more frequently is just all that you need to have an extraordinary life. And, and these things, and just to give practical examples of these things compounding. So, you know, um, uh, so how do you know, people sort of say, well, how come you attend a TED conference guy? Well, I wouldn't have attended a TED conference if I hadn't met Monish Pabrai. Uh, I tried to attend a TED conference on my own and they had no interest in me attending. So we know the story about me meeting Monish Pabrai. Then Monish Pabrai, through the goodwill that he created, uh, gets a request uh, if, if, if he's interested in um, being a uh, donor to the TED India, the first TED India that took place. And he invited me to join. And I, of course, now know the power of giving. And I say, oh, sure, I'm happy to sponsor that. It was not much more than it would have cost to attend the TED conference on its own. And at that conference, I meet somebody 
who he's just he's one of the guys at TED. He's a guy called Bruno Gisani. So Bruno Gisani, um, yeah, he meets me, but he he met he must have met six or seven hundred people at that conference. But of course, I wrote him a thank you note. It's a pleasure to meet you. And as a result of that, he invited me to co-found TEDx Zurich. And as a result of being part of TEDx Zurich, I met a whole slew of people. And actually, it was through Bruno Gisani that I met somebody who was deeply helpful with the book, somebody called Jesse Gamble. So, you know, all these, I, I'm sort of like probably confusing you a little bit, but there are all these webs where I can see that the, me putting out goodwill to the world just increased the probability that something good would come back to me. But part of the key, and, and, I, and I see Preston nodding away, is that um, you can't expect anything. You just, you send it out. And, and you know, a bit like, this is an approach to the world that is not like mammalian mating. This is more like a, a, a you know, a frog swimming over a bunch of eggs and just sending a sperm everywhere and you wait and see later to see what develops into a tadpole and what doesn't. And so... But, you know, I, what I would tell you guys, and this is, this is probably heretical, is that I am so addicted to that, that if, if you had to ask me to choose between, if you wanted to distinguish between the philosophy of value investing and this goodwill creation strategy, uh, I'm, 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 I'd probably choose the goodwill thing because it's so applicable in so many more circumstances than value investing. For value investing, you need to be in developed markets and you know, all sorts of things have to be working for you. Whereas I'd like to believe that with this goodwill stuff, you could be the guy in China working on a key, offloading boats and still end up very successful. And the, and the great part about it is it only costs the, the cost of a, of a piece of paper and an envelope, unlike uh, value investing, where you might have to have, you know, a couple thousand dollars to put something in the market. Absolutely. And, and, and you Here's something that I, you know, because it's come up, I, 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 so your audience may be asking you themselves at this point, yeah, but, you know, what am I, what am I going to write that's going to be meaningful to some wealthy, powerful, influential person? And I just want to, you know, here's something that's really important that's hard to believe. So what can I write to Warren Buffett, let's say, that would make him feel impacted by what I've written? Because he doesn't need anything from me. Absolutely nothing. And the answer is that everybody feels better about themselves and the life that they're living if they know they've had a positive impact on somebody else. So a short note, and it should be short, because they don't necessarily have a lot of time to read it. It says, you have had an impact on me. I have now lived, I'm now living a different life. Because it's something that we can do to the most powerful and influential and rich people on the planet, even if we have nothing. So Sharing that sentiment is valuable. I'll just say one other thought with you, which you'll find funny, is that so I write about the power of thank you notes and the importance of doing it in the book. And so after the book was published, I've been getting quite a high rate of handwritten notes coming all, into my office. They're all coming back to you. You sent them out so, there, and now they're so, all coming back to you. So here's my problem, is that now I can't very well ignore them. I mean, you know, this, that would be not walking the walk. So I, I feel obligated and I do want to respond personally to every single one. And so um, I spent, when I came back from my U.S. book tour, I spent two weeks just writing that wow. back to people who had written to me. And, 
So be careful what you wish for, I guess. But I, <laughs> but I think that, and it's very funny because I, some of my, my, my assistant in Zurich, she's like, you know, we can respond to them. And my answer is no, I have to respond. And she says, why don't you just give me the formula? And my answer to her is, and, and I don't know that if she fully internalized this, is that I have to write it because I have, to, if I don't write it, then I won't learn. And in the process of writing it, there's this idea that the writing changes you. And I need to read these notes and then write the answer myself for my own benefit. So I can definitely testify to that because I, I initially reached out to Guy and I just had this vague hope that he would come on our podcast. And to my surprise, he actually responded himself. So uh, yeah, I can just testify to that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think most people, if they had the privilege of having an assistant, I probably, I think most people would probably let, let the assistant uh, respond. But I was pretty impressed that you responded and you did it fast. And then, and then well, uh, Stig forwarded me the message and I about jumped through my roof. <laughs> uh, don't do that. Your children won't be very happy with you. But, and Preston, there's a letter from you at the office with a book that I have not yet opened. It's sitting with a pile that I still need to get to. So my apologies for that. No sweat. <laughs> okay, so as you can see, uh, that wraps up our first portion of our interview with Guy Spear. And you can see that it, his wealth of knowledge is just amazing. Uh, for right now, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and play our question from the audience. And uh, I'll go ahead and answer that for you. Hey Preston, this is Flavio. I've been following your website and value investing lessons for a couple of weeks now and decided to give the practical side a try through a simulator. By the way, the quality of information is nothing short of amazing. After sitting through the various companies, I decided to take a look at Lockheed Martin since it's a company that I deal with on a daily basis. When I was looking at it, I noticed that the EPS is stable and rising, however the book value is unstable at best. I understand that this can be due to the company not being able to manage their equity well, but what sparks my interest is why, when you look at the dividend payout, is it consistently increasing? I would assume that as a company, your priority would be to retain or at least stabilize your equity rather than pay out most of your earnings in a dividend, but it doesn't seem to be the case with Lockheed. Now I know that a lot of their work is contracted by the government and you can see that the return on equity spiked in 2012, which is when the midlife refits began. I was stipulating that because of this, the company has a sense of security and that they will always have that guaranteed income from these government contracts. And that's possibly why they may be less careful about incurring liabilities than other companies. This leads me to the second part of my question. Since the company has a stable increasing dividend payout and a higher intrinsic value than the current market price, would it be wise to disregard the drastic changes in the book value knowing that they are protected by this government safety net? So, Flavio, this is a really good question, and it's something that I think a lot of people um, just kind of take for granted. Whenever they're first learning how to uh, value a stock, they're looking at the book value a lot. Uh, that's a common theme that I see with people. Um, and the thing that, I, that I'll tell you is if the book value is increasing, um, and I'm not going to talk specifically to Lockheed Martin, but just, just kind of valuation in general. If the book value is increasing, let's say over a 10-year period, and it went from $10 to $20 over that 10-year period. Uh, what you'd want to see uh, that would correspond with that, and this is a, the point that I think a lot of people miss, is you've got to see the earnings take a very similar path with that book value in order to value that book value um, with some of the calculators. Uh, for, for our example there, let's say the book value went from $10 to $20. So let's just say that the EPS was $1 10 years ago whenever the book value was corresponding at $10. Um, so that would give you, you know, about a ten percent return on the on the 
value of those assets. So what you'd want to see is that trends up to $20 in, in book value. You'd want to see the earnings or the profit of the company go up to $2. Uh, if you're not seeing that, if you're not seeing that, that corresponding increase in the profit that the company produces to the assets that they're accumulating, that means that they're not uh, keeping that efficiency, that efficiency level that they had of, uh, call it 10%. Uh, so if Let's just say that the book value went from $10 to $20, but the EPS stayed at $1 and it, and it remained $1 throughout that 10-year period. I would make the conclusion that that company is making poor investments with the retained earnings that they're keeping and that it's not producing any more profit or value to the investor. So that's the part that I think you really got to look at is, is the EPS trending with the book value growth. So after you determine that the EPS and the book value are growing in lockstep with each other, then you got to make the conclusion of, okay, what is this company going to earn into the future and how do I discount that back appropriately? And I think for a company like, uh, let's just say, any type of government contractor in the United States during this time frame, uh, end of 2014 time frame, uh, I think the biggest concern is that the U.S. government has said that they're going to continue to have budget cuts. They're going to continue to downsize. Um, and that's where I would probably have the most concern with a company, you know, a defense company or something like that, um, because that's what's really going to truly impact the future cash flows of the business. So I know that's a really qualitative thing to say, but I think that that's where you've really got to have this balance between qualitative and quantitative analysis whenever you're determining the value of a stock. I know I didn't speak specifically to the company that you were addressing, but I'd rather make it more general for people to kind of understand the essence of, of valuation and security analysis. So a fantastic question. We're going to send you a free signed copy of the Warren Buffett accounting book. And uh, for anybody else out there, if you want to go ahead and submit your question to our show, we'd love to play it on the air. So um, just go ahead and submit that on our website, asktheinvestors.com, and you can submit your question there and record it for us. So that wraps up our episode for today. Uh, we really enjoyed having you and thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next week on the second part with our interview with Guy Spear. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.